Um, <coughs> good. Right. We are looking at the book of Isaiah. We've just started a series looking at Isaiah. So um, if you've got, there are some blue and purple Bibles at the ends of the rows if you want to um, have a copy in front of you. Can I do that? Don't you? People get headaches if I don't close the curtain, so it's good. Um, <laughs> now, before we start, let me, um, I don't know whether you've, you've ever had the experience of um, stepping off a plane or stepping off a boat where you arrive in a whole new country and um, you're looking around and people are just speaking different languages or the, the, a different language to you. And the culture, all the road signs are in a different, in a different language and, and look completely different. And you, as you look around, you just think, I do not know how I can do life here. <laughs> this is because it's going, to be, it's going to be really awkward just to find where I'm supposed to be and that sort of thing. And you can't quite get a, a, your head around it. And if you stay there for a few days, it gets really exhausting trying to do life, but in a different country, in a different culture. And I think when, if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back into um, books like Isaiah, I think very often when we're reading things like Isaiah, it just feels like it, it's the same kind of experience. You end up like you feel like you've landed in a different culture, in a different time, in a different place, and you're asking all these questions, what's going on, how am I supposed to make sense of all this? And it's exhausting because there's a work of cultural and religious translation that has to occur. But of course, I'm, I, I think I'm going to say this every week, but the reason why it's worth studying this is because two things are the same. We worship the same God that we see speak, spoken about in, um, in Isaiah's world. And human nature has not changed as well over that 2,800 years. Humanity is the same and God is the same. And that means that it is worth reading to see what God's word says to us in a timeless way. So before we read, let me, let me pray and then we'll look at the... Um, We'll look at the passage. Father God, we pray that you would help us to chase out of our lives some of the things that Rakin's just been talking about with the children, where we're just spiritual hypocrites, where we pretend to be one thing on the outside, but where there are other things going on in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would protect us from those times when we, um, uh, when we just uh, don't want to worship you, but we'd rather worship other things, our, uh, our finances or our job or our, even our families, even good things. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, chase those things out that, that ahead of everything else that we have in life, that you would be, um, that you would be the center of our world, that you would be um, taking center stage within our lives. Amen. Right, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 2 into chapter 5. And I'm going to read down to verse 19 of chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 2. And you'll see chapter 4 starts with good news and then we get into the bad news. I did warn you that it was a lot of bad news in Isaiah. You've been warned. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion will remain who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. And then the Lord will create over all a mountain, um, 
sorry, will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. But he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and peoples of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither prune nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard, heard the cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in, and, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty is declared in my hearing. Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed only an epa of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up all late at night till they uh, are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and tambourines and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the works of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens wide its mouth, and into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture, lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. It's a sober passage, isn't it? Last week we got a really strong challenge about the dangers of spiritual hypocrisy, of pretending to be one thing on the outside but being something quite different within. This week the focus isn't so much on hypocrisy, it's on very tepid, lukewarm religion, lukewarm faith. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been a bit stunned at the, at the news that's hit the cycling world. Cycling is one of the few sports that I follow with a degree of sort of interest. And uh, headlines like this have um, sort of caught my eye. Bradley Wiggins and Sky operated in grey areas which blur moral credibility. Um, the news has come out, basically, that before Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France in 2012, which was a huge event in sort of world sport because he was the first British person ever to win uh, the tour, it turns out that he was injecting with steroids. Um, the steroids were banned for athletes, um, but because Wiggins had asthma, he managed to get an exemption from the sport's governing body uh, in order to be able to take the steroids. Uh, there were two problems with that. One is that lots of people have pointed out that um, the steroids he was taking were quite an unusual treatment for asthma, uh, and in fact they have various other benefits for um, sports like cycling. 
And the other issue is, um, the other significant issue is that in his autobiography in 2012, he uh, made a great point about the fact that he'd never injected anything into his body and left out some of the things that he had been injecting into his body. And yet what Bradley Wiggins have come out and done, and Team Sky as well to the same extent, have come out and, we've, we, and they, the, the face they say to the media is, we have broken no rules. But you can tell from the slightly snarky... Um, uh, website posting here and the headlines that they've been getting that although the rules were kept lots of people feel like the spirit of the rules were very much abused and the claim of Team Sky is their reputation is quite badly damaged to be a, a team that is opposed to um, uh, misusing substances in order to get sporting results. Now the danger for us and the reason for telling you all this the danger for us as Christians is that we do we begin to do exactly the same thing we maintain a kind of Christianity that says, I kept all the rules, I did the sort of things that you would expect a Christian to do, whilst knowing that at root, our heart just isn't in it. And with countless distractions and problems and issues and all sorts of things, what do our hearts long for? Is there a risk? In fact, is not the likelihood that what we really desire, what we really crave, is a kind of tepid, lukewarm kind of faith. It is a real battle in the Christian life to, to keep a, a white-hot, burning desire for Jesus at the center of your heart. You know, I, I want my Christianity not full fat, not full sugar, not full caffeine. I think I, I, we quite like a version of Christianity that is diet Christianity. Um, you know, that's the instinct of our hearts, isn't it? You know, I want to receive forgiveness, but I want to harbor some bitterness where it suits me. I want friendship, but I don't want to have to actually go and love my enemies. I'm willing to give up spending my money wastefully because I can see how that can be a good thing, but I don't necessarily want to be generous. I'm willing to leave behind self-destructive bad habits, but I don't necessarily want to embrace a new life with new patterns of living that are life-changing. I find it unthinkable that I would say anything publicly against Jesus but do we ever speak up for Jesus where it's costly to do so? Isn't that Christian life slightly radical and dangerous? And so the question in my mind that I might never admit to anybody else, and maybe the question in your mind too, is what does the minimum Christian life look like? What is the minimum that I can get away with and still call myself a Christian? Now, Isaiah 5, I think, deals with that kind of minimal, tepid religion. Now, two things we're going to see, okay? <clears throat> the fierce love of God, the fierce love of God. And the second thing we're going to see is the tepid faith of God's people in this passage, okay? Fierce love of God, tepid love of God's people. So, fierce love of God is the first thing we see. And chapter 5 starts with this love song. Love songs um, are enormously popular, aren't they? And, but there's a particular kind of love song that is it's like a love song that Radiohead would do or Morrissey used to do or those kinds of love songs that are um, they're this, it's, this, it's the love song of the jilted lover and it starts off so well, so beautiful and then it, halfway through it turns out it's a totally sort of poisoned um, song and that, that's what um, Isaiah 5 is it's a song about a jilted lover I will sing of the one I love my loved one has a, a vineyard on a hillside and the metaphor, the vineyard, we, we see in verse 7, is, is God's people. And God says, 
look at what I've done for them. I, I, I planted them to be a great vineyard in, in wonderful soil. There was a watchtower so that no one could attack. And um, we're supposed to kind of think of a beautiful, fruitful, wonderful vineyard. But look how far the people have gone from that. And so God asks, and it's a desperately sad question in verse 4. He, 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 he puts it out to them and says, what more could I have done for them? What more could have been done for my vineyard? But here's the issue. When he goes back to see what the vineyard has brought about, he, he, he says he looked for a crop, of, a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. We see the point, don't we, that here in Isaiah 5, God never judges without reason. God did everything he could for his people in his own mind. In fact, he even says in verse 3, you decide, you be the judge, the, the very people I'm convicting. You be the judge. Do you, think, do you think I'm right in my judgments? Have I failed my people or have my people failed me? And so when God says in verses 5, 6, and 7, I'm sending an army of a foreign nation into the vineyard and they're going to knock down the walls and everything else, God's judgment isn't the opposite of his love. It isn't because he despises his people. It isn't because he never loved his people. It's precisely because of his love. And we know, I think we've experienced, you know, you've experienced betrayal in life. The greater the love, the greater the anguish of betrayal when something goes wrong. And God's love is never apathetic or lazy. And actually, we don't, we don't want apathetic love, do we? You, you, don't, you don't look up to the husband who walks in, slams the door, throws the flowers in the wife's face and says, I know the rules. It's Wednesday, so I've got your flowers. By the way, I hope you don't mind if my girlfriend stays over tonight. That's, like, that's not a sign. The, the, the giving of flowers is an empty gesture, isn't it? It's not love. Surely true love, true love is an undivided love. And God says, my own love for my people was like that, but my people didn't love me like that. And I think this passage, it removes all the glib assumptions about the love of God where we say, God loves me so much, he, would never, he, would, he could never judge. God doesn't judge easily, but it is with great anguish, but it is part of his love. Now, this passage, and we need to be careful when going through Isaiah and saying, this passage is all about 21st century Britain, because it isn't. <laughs> this is about God's people over two and a half thousand years ago. But, but there is one of the desperately sad things we, we see within our own culture is how easy people find it to reject Christianity and call out God as harsh and unfair and angry and cruel in comparison to us who are humane, tolerant, wonderful, good people. God is just a harsh by comparison. And it's a lie, isn't it? It's a lie to say God has treated us like... Our, our country has enjoyed incredible privileges. Jesus has been preached for centuries in our country. And not only that, Jesus, the message of Jesus has influenced all kinds of things, like our legal system. And it continues to influence our society in really extraordinary ways. But so often people just put God to one side and say, we can do without it. I was, really I was reading a piece by Tom Holland, a new statesman, last week. And Tom Holland is a, is a brilliant and popular historian. And as far as I know, he's not a Christian. But in this article, he, he, he sort of claims that he's seen through the myth that he used to believe for years and years and years, that basically the time that Britain spent with Christianity was time in the Dark Ages. And he says, what we really ought to do is sort of scoot back in history to the time of the Greeks and the Romans and go back to the time of the ancient world and find their true humanity back in the classical era. But the more he read, the more he realized the world of ancient Greece and Rome wasn't a world he wanted to live in. 
And he finished his little article by saying, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods to lay claim to the ruling of the universe, to uphold the order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. And then he says, today, even as belief in God fades across what is collectively known as Christendom, continues, Christianity continues to bear the stamp of the two-millennia-old revolution that Christianity represents. He says, Christianity is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and my ethics, I've learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. And yet even with, sorry, I'm going to put him on. Even, even with all these privileges and immense blessings, our culture wanders away from God. And we, as Christians, wander away from God saying, how have we benefited? What has God ever done for us? Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, it, it isn't God's word to our country in quite that direct way, but it is to his own people. But God is asking his question, what, what have I ever given you? What have, what have I ever failed to give you? And, and, and it speaks to us, particularly as Christians, I think, because there's a little lie we sometimes entertain. Well, we say, I've, I've experienced so much pain in my life. I've experienced so much suffering in my life. What have I ever gained from God? The failure of the people in Isaiah's days, they, they thought they hadn't seen God's rescue. In fact, in verse 19, they say, go on, let, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. And we also conveniently, from time to time, forget God's work and how we've seen his work. We forget that God has given us life. We forget that God has given us a conscience. We forget that God has given us his son to rescue us and redeem us, to die on a cross for us. We forget that God has given his Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring us spiritual life and change. Forget that God has given us a church that has preached the Bible. We forget that God has given us Christian friends or people around us who pray for us. And we just can't turn around to God, can we, and say, I can't put my faith in you because what have you ever done for me? When are you going to act in my life anyway? Think of all the spiritual blessings that we've enjoyed and how all those things flow from the intense love of God towards us. Our failure of faith isn't his failure to love. God doesn't judge without good reason. His love isn't like our love, it's, it's a single-minded love for his people. Now, the contrast is made even clearer in the second half of this when we look at the, the tepid love of God's people. So when he comes back and he looks at the, the vineyard, it, it says in verse seven, he looked for justice but what he saw was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but what he heard were cries of distress. He looked for things from his people that he himself exemplify. And yet he doesn't find it. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? If you, if you planted a load of red grapes, expecting beautiful red, be able to make red wine next season, and then what you get on the, on the, um, on the vine is just a load of white grapes. Or even worse, so rotten apples, rotten fruit. But that's what God's describing. I set my people up to love righteousness, but they ended up loving distress. I set them up to love justice, but they opted for bloodshed. 
It's all right, I'll pause. I'll pause, Graham. You're getting Bibles, it's fine. <laughs> and so God issues these woes in the rest of the chapter to say, this is, what, this is, this is why I'm judging you. This is what's going to happen. This is why. And the first woe is for people who, and their great crime, is going from house, is adding house to house and field to field. Now, I don't know, if you look at that and you think, honestly, you're telling me that the greatest woe that we see in Isaiah 5 is people doing extensions on their house. Is that, is that really the limit of what God gets God riled? But that's not the limit. That's not what they're doing. That's not just what they're doing. Last week, one of the things that we saw was how the Old Testament law defined how different Israel was as a society from everyone else in the world. It was a society really absolutely full of social justice. And what's going on here are people obsessed with the accumulation of wealth using their God-given wealth and safety of their land in order just to accumulate more and more and more for themselves. It's using wealth to gain more wealth. Now, it's important to see that in the Old Testament, these people, the people were not called to live in communes. The law was clear that they ought to own their own land, and that was good for kind of taking personal responsibility for things. But there was provision. Every seven years, any land that was sold or lent to others was supposed to return to the original families, so that every family had the opportunity to make a living off the land. No one need to be in long-term poverty. And what that did was to limit the inequality between the richest and the poorest. She meant that everything always got reset back in some sort of way. But here we read, those who had power and wealth ignored God's law and did the exact opposite and built for themselves bigger and bigger homes and buying as much land as they saw fit. And we saw from last week's passage, they were doing it all while going through the temple sacrifice and saying, it's fine because I'm going about my temple worship and I'm doing all the things that God would have me do. And God says, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. So what are you going to do? What's the result of what you're going to do? You're just going to push everybody out. God's law was radical. I mean, it prevented people from lending money and charging interest. And if you had lots of money, do you know what your duty was if you were incredibly wealthy? You had to lend it without gaining interest. You couldn't use your wealth to gain more wealth. I mean, the people you lent it to also had a duty to pay it back, but you had a duty to lend it out. And they just got rid of all that. And what is described here is just wild income inequality, people pricing each other out, a small group of people owning all the land and having all the power. We obviously don't know anything about this in the UK. Except we completely do, don't we? One of the criticisms of large businesses in the UK is the pay disparity between... So I think it's the, the graph is something like this. I think that um, FTSE 100 executives, um, the people at the top of the company earn about 150 times on average the people at the bottom end of the company. George Sorrell, sorry, no, Martin Sorrell, advertising firm WPP is CEO. He owns, he owns over 5,000 times the minimum wage with his salary. 70 million he earned last year. And what Isaiah is describing is a society that is just sick with greed, where disparity of wealth and housing leads to all kinds of so social injustice. And I'm not sure, and here's the thing for us, we, can, you know, we see a graph like that and smugly think, oh yeah, I'm down at the bottom, I'm never going to be near the top, I don't need to worry. Actually, I think the, the thing that Isaiah is um, preaching into 
is to say this is a whole society that is consumed with money. And as we look at this, we realize we are part of this. We are part of a society that derives its satisfaction and its values from money. And we can, without thinking, invest our whole lives chasing after that stuff and fill our lives with it. And all we manage to do is, is just silence our true purpose to live for God. And the warning in Isaiah is to say, you know what, in the end this isn't going to satisfy you. In verse 13, those of high rank are going to die of hunger and the common people are going to be parched with thirst. Now, we know it's the same issue. It's easy to look, always look back and say, oh yeah, but I bet they were so much worse. What does Jesus do when he turns up in the temple? He's rolling over the table saying, what, what have you done to a house of prayer? Using it to what? Trade money? What does Paul have to write to the church about in 1 Timothy 6? How they view money and how they use money in order to accumulate wealth for themselves and push other people out of their relationships and church relationships. It's a big issue. Now, in verses 11 to 17, the second woe is directed at people who live for pleasure. And I don't, I don't think it's supposed to be two different groups. I think there's always, it's always one type of person that's being described, but he's just pulling out different aspects of what's going on. But here it's, they live for pleasure, so it's about wine, music, waking up early in the morning to fill the day with fun activities. And again, for us, it's easy to think, well, I don't live for pleasure. I've got, I'm, you, sh you should see how much misery there is in my life. I don't live for pleasure. But actually all the stuff we daydream about, future holidays, about bringing pleasure to our children or our grandchildren or our friends. For us, it's very easy, isn't it, to live for the weekend, live for the things that we want to get out of life. So seeking the best possible experiences we, we can in life and to live for those things. And Isaiah, he just cuts through it all and he says, if you live like that, verse 12, you have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. He's basically saying, if you live like that, your life will be utterly superficial. There's no sense of what God is doing in the world, no sense of what God is doing in your life. And it's so easy to live like, you know, we just wake up one day and think, when was the last time I prayed, God, can you really use me? God, how would you like to deploy my life so it's a life of purpose and meaning for your glory? And without noticing it, we just kind of, acquiesce to this life that is quiet, filled with lots of little pleasures and stuff, and that's the stuff that really captivates our heart. We still have an appetite, but it's not an appetite for the Lord, it's just an appetite for all sorts of other things. And it's not for real spiritual change, and it's not to be making an impact for Christ in our workplace or our community, it's just a dull, limp, second-rate diet Christianity, that's what it is. And the woes that Isaiah preaches about, saying, this isn't real faith, and in verse 13, my people will go into exile for, for their lack of understanding. Now, you're feeling depressed? Kind of thinking, what do I do? What do I, how do we get out of this? What do we do about this? Well, let me give you two things. The first thing, sorry, we'll come on to that in a second. Oh, yeah, the first thing is... Um, Holiness is positive, not negative. 
Holiness is positive, not negative. It is not holiness. I don't know what, what conjures up in your mind when I t s speak the word holiness. I think lots of us, we sort of hear the word holiness and it just becomes to us something dull. It's something boring. It's something dry. It's, it's about all the stuff we avoid doing or taking away out of life. And I think holiness is positive, not negative. It's about what we embrace and what we do, not just about what we take out. It's like the, it's the difference between the child taking cod liver oil and the child eating ice cream. See, we, really, we, we kind of think about relationship with God or ho growing holiness in our relationship with God like cod liver oil, don't we? Oh, it doesn't taste nice, but I know in the end it'll do me some good. So we think to us, well, what's the minimum I can get away with taking, you know, give me a little sup of holiness because that's all I can bear. Ooh, ooh, it doesn't taste right. But the kid in an ice cream parlor doesn't say what's the least I can say. You know, this kid is not saying what's the least I can eat. He's saying how much, can I, how much am I allowed? And if we see relationship with God like cod liver oil, it just shows that we don't understand. We don't see the world through his eyes. We don't understand what he's given us. And we believe fundamentally that life would actually be better without him than with him. And it's the same with holiness. It, it ought not to be how little can I get away with, but... How much am I allowed? What do, you, what do you want next, Lord? How can I be spiritually fruitful and faithful in this season of life now? And it's not, so holiness is not just sort of denying one part of ourselves to close down some sin, but opening ourselves up and following God and inviting him to change and shape us. So it's, it's this. Holiness isn't just negative. It isn't about just taking off other stuff. It's about putting on other stuff. Not just denying self, although it, that is part of it, but it's about opening ourselves up to following God. So it's not just that holiness with money isn't just about avoiding bad financial habits. It's about learning to be generous. That's the first thing. Change how you see holiness. The second thing is to realize that it's only Jesus who actually satisfies. And actually the promise of Isaiah 4 that I barely mentioned the promise of Isaiah 4 is that God will one day be with his people. And it talks about one day the Lord creating over all of Mount Zion a cloud of smoke, a, a, a glow of fire, and over everything will be the glory. And it will be a canopy, it will be a shelter and a shade. In the end, it's God's love that wins over and covers over his people. He sends his people off in judgment, but that is never the end of the story. In the end, what he says, the thing that will capture, captivate you and ultimately satisfy you, the promise to invest your hope in, is the fact that one day I'm going to come amongst you. I'm going to be with you. It will be God himself that brings them satisfaction. Now, we're living on the other side of history, aren't we, to the people in Isaiah's day. They were waiting for one day when God would come and walk amongst them. They were fighting to hold on to the hope of one day him coming. We live on the other side of history because when John announces Jesus coming, he says, we have seen the glory of the one and only. We have seen God. And now, you know, our faith is still far from perfect, but we're, we're not just holding on to the promise of something future. We're also fueled by what God has done in the past in terms of what he's, how he's rescued us. And not just that, that we have seen Christ and that we have received the promised Holy Spirit living in us. We have and we do experience God in a deep way, and yet obviously we're still waiting. In the meantime, though, the challenge for us is not to get satisfied with our lives on other life goals. 
because in the end we have to keep front and center it is only Jesus who satisfies Alain de Botton um, wrote a really interesting book called Status Anxiety and he said this actually it's part of a broader quote let me, let me read the broader quote and you can pick up as we go through it says life seems to be a process of replacing one anxiety with another and substituting one desire for another, which is how loads of us live life, isn't it? Kind of, I want, I want that thing, I want that thing, I'll save and save and save, and then we buy it, and then two weeks later, I want another thing, I wasn't enough. How many times have you come back from holiday and, and sort of, you know, started thinking about the next holiday that you're going to get to go on? You know, it's, you know, it's a process of substituting one desire for another, which is not to say, he says, we should never strive to overcome any of our anxieties or fulfill any of our desires, but rather to suggest that we should perhaps build into our strivings an awareness of the way our goals promise us a respite and a resolution that they cannot, by definition, deliver. Saying, listen, anything you put your hope in in life is never ultimately going to satisfy you. This is Zadie Smith, the author. She sums it up perfectly. She says, resign yourself to the lifelong sadness that comes from never being satisfied. Miserable, it's miserable, it's hopeless. And yet, and yet, what does C.S. Lewis say? When I find in myself desires that nothing that this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In the end, and the promise of Isaiah 4, in the end, it is only God who can answer all, who can satisfy all your desires. In the end, that appetite you have that you go around groping for in this thing and this thing and this thing and wonder if you know, it will be love or wonder if it will be a holiday or wonder if it will be an arrest or wonder if it will be in retirement or wonder where this satisfaction in life is going to come from. In the end, the promise is the glory of God. It is only in God that you find an answer to that satisfaction. And the privilege of us as Christians, and the reason why holiness is positive, is that we are able to feed on Christ now. We have relationship with Christ. We can find him satisfied. So if you find yourself drifting, if you think, yeah, I'm really tempted by diet Christianity, give me some of that. Where do I go? Which church will sell me that? There are plenty. Um, If you find yourself drifting and you think my appetites are all just mixed, spend some time in prayer. Just come back to Christ. Consider what he has done for you. Consider the ways in which you're tempted to think you've done nothing for me and think, what has God actually done for me? And remind yourself what God has given you and ask him to help you keep that front and center of your life. I think fundamentally, it's this idea of satisfaction, it isn't, self-denial, strangely, isn't at the heart of Christianity because Christianity is fundamentally not what can you give up for God. It's all about what God has done for you and finding your satisfaction in him. Why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you so much. As we go through Isaiah, we're really struck by your relentless love for your people. How even though we see the sins of these people 2,800 years ago, we recognize us in them. And uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to find a way out of um, just tepid, faithless Christianity. Father, we are so grateful that um, though you read out woe upon woe, you also made a great promise that you would come amongst your people. And Father, we thank you that we have seen the answer to that promise in Christ. Father, there is so much satisfaction to be found in him, the one who answers the longings of us all, 
the one who offers us true peace with you, true rest in you. And yet, Father, we're just constantly tempted to find our satisfaction in so many other places. So, Father, we give you our hearts again, and we ask you to remind us of all the things that you've done for us, that you might be our joy, that you might be our satisfaction, and that we might not live lives that are utterly distracted by a thousand other minor missions, but that, Father, we would find our hope and our confidence and our delight in you alone. Amen. Thanks, Reckon.